Let's turn with you now to our sermon text in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20. And verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on one hand we recognize that your commandments are well known and the words themselves are fairly easy to understand, but on the other hand we recognize that we so poorly understand and the things that we maybe once recognize in them tend to fade over time and the keen edge of your law loses its, its sharpness to us and Lord, we begin to move into fuzziness and lack of clarity. And so, Lord, how we pray that you would greatly bless this preaching of your own word, and that you'd make these things clear and sharp to us again, and that we would understand precisely what you would have us to do in this third commandment. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last time we were speaking of the second commandment, and as I mentioned, that was really closely related to the first commandment, having to do with our worship of the one true and living God and the way that we are to worship him as he commands us, and not through images. And tonight we come to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And of course, this one is also related to those first two commandments. I've mentioned uh, that there are these two tables of the law, the first and the second, the first having to do with God and the second having to do with man, and there are some parallels between these two things, these tables, because they both go in order of importance. And so the first commandment is the willful denial of God's rightful existence, because that's what it is. If you have any other gods before him, that's what you're doing. In one way or another, by implication, you are denying his his right to exist as the supreme God. And of course, the sixth then is a willful denial of the, the right of a person, of a man to exist, murder. And the second commandment has to do with a perversion of the right relationship to God in our worship, whereas the seventh and eighth have to do with a perversion of our right relationship to people and to their things. And so is there any kind of parallel here? Well, what about the next commandment on the second table? That's, having to, that's the, the ninth commandment. It has to do with the way that we speak about people, that we should uphold their right name, that we should uphold their right uh, reputation, and we not, should not speak falsely concerning them. And what you know, we have this parallel here in the third commandment, having to do with our upholding the right way in which we speak about God and his reputation. And his name. Well, how do we speak about God? How do we use his name? What do we imply about him when we speak or when we fail to speak? The third commandment makes it very clear that these things are not trivial, but matters to be taken very seriously. There's just one example that I could point you to. I might mention in Acts. Again, we shouldn't imagine that just because something's in the New Testament, it is therefore inherently more powerful and special than the Old Testament. But 
you know, in, in the culture as a whole and sometimes in the church, we sometimes think that God took things seriously in the Old Testament and he's become an old softy in the New. But I'll just read Acts 12, 21 to 23. On a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and was, he was eaten by worms and died. And you see how it is. Words were used of, of him, Herod, that should apply only to the one true and living God, and Herod failed to correct them. He didn't say them himself, but he allowed these words to be used of him, and he was struck dead. No trivial matter at all. Well, our subject is this third commandment. That's the title, very simply, the third commandment, with just two points. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, Two, because the Lord will judge those who do. So the first of these simple points, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because that's the text of verse 7. Now, what do we mean when we say take? We have to deal with these words as they come, so we, we kind of parse them out and get meaning from them so that it doesn't just wash over us. Take. So not in the sense of taking away, but rather in the sense of take up. Taking something up. You shall not take up the name of the Lord your God in vain. There, there is this, the name of God. It is there available for you to utter, available for you to use. And the question has to do of the, the, the manner in which the circumstances in which you decide to take up that name. You shouldn't do it in vain. And this name of the Lord your God, what does that include? Well, sometimes people have decided to define that very, very narrowly, particularly the Jews in the Old Testament decided, well, that surely mainly applies, or what we're talking about here has to do with the covenant name of the Lord that was revealed to Moses, you remember, in the burning bush, that that Hebrew name YHWH that we really don't know how to pronounce. People claim to know how to pronounce it, but we don't really know. Some have said Jehovah or Yahweh, but no one really knows. And the Jews stopped pronouncing the name at all to, just to be safe. In fact, they, they wrote in, in the, the, you know that uh, Hebrew has the, the consonants here and these big blocky letters, and underneath it are pointed for vowels. The, the pointing for vowels makes no sense whatsoever, and it was intended to because it's intended to be vocalized as Adonai in the text instead of the real name. So you'd never be guilty of taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, I wish it were that simple. Of course, if it were just that, then already we have guaranteed that no one will ever take the name of the Lord God in vain ever again because no one really knows how to pronounce it. That's great. And it could be then that those of you who have not made this the subject of your study and have looked at the various possibilities of how it might really have been pronounced, you have no possibility of ever violating this third commandment. Oh, that it were that, that simple. Of course, we understand that the concept of God's name extends well beyond just his covenant name as it is uttered in Hebrew. This is not just his proper names, of which there are more than one, but his public reputation, you see, because that has to do with his 
name. It is his good name, if you will, his reputation. So, for instance, take friends, uh, take the idea of what happens. Uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. We've talked about that this morning. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? What can we describe what Satan is doing? On the one hand, we say that, she, that Satan is there to tempt Eve. But what else is he doing in the process? He is blaspheming the, the name of God. He is taking the name of the Lord, his God, in vain for the specific purpose, not only to do it for an evil work of deceiving Eve, but of, of sullying his good reputation. You see, God is good, but he says he's not. He, he's a miser. And Eve, there are good things out there that, that God is denying you because he's just a miser, you see. And you need to forget about doing what he says. And also, God is true and just, and everything that, every word that he says is utter, utter truth. But Satan comes around and says, don't believe that. What he said isn't actually true. You shall not surely die. What he's told you, Eve, is actually a lie. He is damaging the public reputation of the living God as he does this. Adding to the many, many sins by which he is going to be judged most severely. Well, that's the name of the Lord your God. That's the sort of thing we're talking about, the totality of it, not just the the name itself in technical terms, but of everything relating to the living God, and doing so in vain. That word, by the way, is the same in Hebrew as used in the Ninth Commandment. Uh, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, because that's the more more, uh, precise term of it is speaking something that is, is vain, that doesn't prove to be utterly true and solid. It's, it's vain, it's worthless, it's weightless. It doesn't measure up to reality. And false, not in the sense primarily that it's counterfeit, although it is that, but it is empty. There's nothing solid and true about this testimony, and so it's vain. And so we find it in other places like, for instance, Psalm 31.6, I've hated those who regard useless idols, vain idols, empty idols, but I trust in the Lord. They're vain because there's nothing to them. And what they pretend to be is false. That is the sense in which we're taking the idea. What are we not to do? Taking up this name of the Lord our God in all of its totality, in any way interacting with the public reputation of the living God in a way that proves to be empty, weightless, pointless, or false. Now, what are some examples of that? Well, of course, blasphemy. Leviticus, as it goes through the, you know, the stipulations of the law, Leviticus 24, 16, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land, When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So blasphemy, speaking wrongly and hatefully uh, concerning the living God and turning to sully his name. Uh, Another one would be false prophecy, by the way. Because what are we doing when we say, thus, speak, thus says, saith the Lord? We're saying that God has done something, God has spoken something, when he has not, in fact, done so. And so you know Ezekiel uh, 22.28, her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. That is taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
And that, friends, is why we take that matter of so-called ongoing prophecy very, very seriously. Okay? Um, Now, in some sense, we might say it's kind of harmless and trivial. But how harmless and trivial is it for you to go around claiming that the Lord God has spoken his word in a way, in, in, in a way having state, co-equal status with the word of God. He's uttered a word when he hasn't actually done so. That is not good. And it's taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. There are very, by the way, strict prohibitions against doing that. Deuteronomy 18.18 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words when he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, when, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So false prophecy. Uh, Next to that, so there's blasphemy, there's false prophecy, there's also pretended allegiance to God, a hypocritical profession, saying that you believe in this one true living God, saying that you work for him, saying that you represent him, when in fact you don't. Hosea 10.4, they've spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant, or... First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty nine to thirty. The most specifically having to do with the Lord's Supper that is laid out before us. Why do we fence the table? Why do I I I mention? Look, if you're not a, really a believer, don't take the Lord's Supper. Why do I say that? Because it would be to pretend a false allegiance and a false affiliation to God, which God actually doesn't want you to do. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, meaning they have died. Again, the Lord cares about these things. They are not trivial. And the Lord's Supper represents the Lord. I'm sure you figured that out. And when you take this, these elements upon your lips, you're proclaiming to the whole world, I belong to him. I am a believer. I am a Christian. And if you're not really that, well, the Lord says you are taking his name in vain. Now, of course, the thing that we think of about the the third commandment, now let's be honest, when we think about the third commandment, the thing that immediately comes to our mind has to do with sinful swearing and cursing. And yes, that also falls under this as well. But I would say it's actually less important than those other things. It's not unimportant. It's not trivial. But these other ways are even more weighty, and we should not forget about them. Again, just, just mentioning uh, having to do with fa- false information about God, that's why theology is so important. That's why, that's why we do the work of polemics, of correcting false theology. Right? You cannot just allow lies about God to carry on unchallenged. That's the whole point of these things. They are very serious things that have to be dealt with. But yes, yes, sinful swearing and cursing. Leviticus 19.12, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And the, the root idea here, what we're talking about when we, when we uh, you know, the people around us are always using one of God's names, either of the, the Father, of the Son. They're always doing these things. Why? Because they want to strengthen their words somehow. Now, the root problem is, of course, their words themselves are meaningless and false often. 
And they feel the need, right? The, the more base the man, the more he feels the need to strengthen his weak words with some kind of oath. Because otherwise he recognizes that they have nothing, nothing to them. You can imagine the way this might have arisen. Imagine that there's an origin to this all a long time ago. It'd be much like what happened with Peter, right? Peter says something that's not true and nobody believes him. Because he's acting in a, a base and worthless manner. And, he, and nobody's believing him, and eventually he has to utter an oath in order to get people, and so he thinks, to believe. No, it ultimately doesn't work. But that's the, way it origi- uh, that's the origin, that's the genesis of everyone's use of profanity and of false oaths because they want to get, make their words a little bit more weighty. Well... And so they say things, maybe even in in slightly more religious terms, like, or may God strike me dead, or something like that. Well, the problem is that they don't know God. And the problem is much like it was with the seven, even the seven sons of Sceva, who were there working as exorcists. And and you say, well, at least this is a good and religious uh, thing. But here they were speaking about a God that they knew nothing about. And... So many of people who take the holy name of of God on their lips know nothing of of him and would be disowned by him. God is not their father. But worse than that, of course, they don't even believe in him and they have invoked the name of God in an empty and worthless sort of way. Well, this false swearing and profaning and not just God's name is a curse word, but using the name of God lightly and carelessly, profaning God's name. Now, let me just say that the issue has to do with intent. If your intent in speaking about God is to return thanks to the living God, and you know I say this all the time, don't I? Praise God. You, you say something that has happened that is good, that seems to be an answer to prayer, or something that is agreeable to the will of God, and I will often say something like, praise God. Well, Um, that's good, but I and everyone else have to be careful about it because the culture, for instance, has taken, uh, I I typically say praise God rather than thank God, although the things mean the exact same way, but, but at least in my own experience, people who say thank God sometimes mean it in an empty and worthless sort of way. And so we, we sort of fence that just a little bit. But just changing the words themselves don't fix the problem entirely. We have to make sure that our heart is going along with it. That when we decide to praise him for something, that's actually what's going on in our hearts and minds as well. Well, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the idea of the commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, what's the rationale? We mentioned not every one of the commandments of God has a rationale, but some of them do, and this one is one of them. And it says, because the Lord will not hold him guiltless, he who takes his name in vain. That's our second point. Because the Lord will judge those who do. It's similar to the rationale given for the second commandment. And again, it's important for God to do this because we don't think that we'll be judged for these kind of things. Right? You don't believe me. Uh, if you go to a Greek Orthodox nation, they don't think they're going to be judged for making images of God, right? Uh, in fact, that is part of the, the, the um, anathemas that are, are said because of the so-called Seventh Ecumenical Council. It wasn't really so, 
but it was against iconoclasm and for uh, images and saying you have to do this. And anyone who doesn't worship God without, uh, without images, let him be anathema. And so the whole nation is filled with these images. Well, they don't really think that God's going to hold them uh, accountable. And let me say that the people out there in the world around us do not think that God is going to hold them accountable for taking his holy name on their lips in vain. And so we must be reminded ourselves and, yes, others, that this is true. This is true. You can speak of some, you can speak of even God lightly, but God says, know that I will not let you off lightly. Now, this is particularly relevant in that they will, in most cases, escape the hand of man. Uh, the, the state doesn't really care, doesn't express much interest in upholding the name of God. Now, they might well arrest Christians for telling the truth about wicked sins, like sodomy, or about false religions. But no one really gets in trouble for using the name of the one true and living God in a false and horrific way. Well, the reason why they don't do that is because there's no human victim, or so, you know, they, they say no victim at all, or so they think. But God says, I'm not going to hold them guiltless. And what, do we, what does he say by that? Does he say that I will immediately deal with it? No. We're reminded that God is the judge and that all will be brought into the judgment soon enough. Judgment day is going to happen. Now, let me say that we have to, hmm, I'm sure that I've spoken before about the reality of holding before you the, the imminence of the return of Christ. And for us, that's a very precious thing, isn't it? For God's people, it's what enables us to be sustained in dark days when things are, are, we're going through difficult trials. We have to remember that the Lord is at the door. He is coming soon. And the Lord, in the conclusion of the revelation, behold, I'm coming quickly. And amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we respond. And in our pain and in our suffering and in our grief, we're able to endure knowing that soon enough the Lord will come. And it sustains us also in well-doing. Do not grow weary in well-doing because we're almost done. We're getting closer and closer to our eternal reward. But you know, the sort of opposite effect should happen then on the wicked or even us who would think about sinning in that the Lord in his judgment will soon enough judge the wicked. Now they don't think so. And they think either that he will never come or that his judgment is so far off that they don't have to worry about it. But the Lord is saying very clearly, I will not hold them guiltless. Because the Lord knows his own judgment. He has already foreseen all of these things. And in his mind, the mind of God in which all things have their real existence, the reality of the moment of judging the blasphemer, judging the one who takes the name of the Lord, his God in vain, is as real as I am standing before you. It has already happened in his mind, though it is yet future. And he says with absolute certainty, I will not hold him guiltless. And so the principle is that God will hold people accountable for every word that they speak. Now, I want you to understand that. In particular, words having to do with God himself, but it's actually for every word that we speak. 
equal with every deed that we, we, we commit in this world. Matthew 12, 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus responds in verse 36. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every idle word. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words have weight. Our words are known. We may not even remember what we said. I doubt if we encounter the typical profane man or woman in this town of middle age, I doubt that they could be, even begin to remember how many times in their life they have taken the name of the Lord their God in vain. But do you know who remembers? God. He has a precise number of precisely how many times they have done so, and he will not allow even one of those instances to go without his proper judgment and punishment. Now, that is God's own rationale behind this third commandment. How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, we just look again at the larger catechism, and I understand that I'm continually bringing us before it, and, and we shall do so throughout all this series, as we did in the series of Deuteronomy, because there is no better explication of these commandments that I know of and what we find in our larger catechism. And the duties required begin this way. What is required in the third commandment? This is, by the way, number 112. The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer. By the way, you know that. The means of grace are part of this larger category of the name of God, the means of grace. No minor thing to, to speak against them. The word, sacrament, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in, and now it gives various categories. So this whole thing having to do with God, and the first category is in thought and meditation. Wow. Have we considered that? It's not merely the words that come from our, our mouth, but actually the thought and meditation in our hearts and heads. Well, we know that words proceed from the heart, from the overflow of the heart. And the question is, what are we thinking about God? What is our meditation like? Are we able to meditate? And I would say this, as we all seek to improve our devotions, all seek to be closer to God, one of the best things that we can do for ourselves is to focus our attention on some part of God's word throughout the day. So hard to do, but so useful and fruitful if we do that even if, however brief, if, we, if for some reason we're not able to have our normal time or of quiet time, we can just latch on to a single verse or part of a verse and, and continually have that in our head throughout the day and meditate upon it. How useful is that? And how better beyond that to meditate more completely and holistically on the beauty of the Lord and on all of his wonderful deeds and promises towards us and all the rest of it. And we should continually develop that. In our thought and meditation, and then a next category in word and writing. Of course, I've already spoken in the, the main portion of the sermon having to do with speaking. But what about writing? Well, I want to include writing here as well. 
Now, the obvious application here has to do with theological writing, and that's why we have to be doubly sure that we're not misrepresenting God and his name and what we write about him uh, specifically. But, friends, it applies to every other form of writing as well, and that includes creative writing. You know, so much harm has been done in the history of this nation from creative writing, from novels, And not always because they specifically and explicitly blaspheme God because there was a time in which those kind of books would not have been published, but by their omissions as well. Beloved, if we are able to write a story that has no explicit or even implicit reference to God whatsoever, we're imagining a a world without God. And we've moved even beyond the third commandment, even into the first commandment territory there. Is that a proper revering of him and his reputation? Certainly not. Certainly not. We have to be very, very careful the way that we represent him in our written words as well as in our spoken words to honor him and to rightly represent him and his uh, uh, unmistakable and unforgettable existence, the ground of all other existence. Well, see, by a holy profession and answerable conversation. Now, here I do have to say something about the archaic language. If I say holy profession, then you say, okay, do you, do you mean you know, doctor, lawyer, teacher, what sort of profession? And if I say by answerable conversation, does it mean that I'm talking to you in a conversation after church and I answer what you're asking? Well, the, the, the idea of a profession is what we profess to believe. So we say that we're a believer. That's our profession. We say we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our conversation is an old way of saying how we live in this world, how we interact with others in the world that God has made. And we need to have a good one. All right? We have to have a holy profession, and our, the way that we live has to be in accordance with it. And so 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says, Therefore we also pray always that for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we take that name upon us, again, for a fairly trivial uh, matter, you you know, when I was there at the chaplain school not so long ago, we were all in the uniform of the nation. And the emblem was on our, our hats and in various ways other, otherwise incorporated in the uniform. And we could either do a good job of representing the nation or a bad job representing the nation. A good job representing the U.S. Navy or a poor job representing the U.S. Navy. Well, we don't wear uniforms, But we absolutely have the name of the Lord God applied to us, primarily in baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that name is upon us. And as we walk around as as Christians, people know that we're Christians. We're wearing that uniform spiritually, and we should walk in a way that is in accordance with that. Now, what if on the other hand... We walk in wicked ways. What if we walk in sin? Well, then we really, by, in essence, we're blaspheming that name. We're doing harm to the reputation of God. By a holy profession, an answerable conversation. D to the glory of God. That's a catch-all, isn't it? 
1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that is our intent in our hearts and minds. If that is the intent of our words and our deeds, then truly we are honoring rightly the name of God. We are seeking to do all to the glory of God. And what a wonderful and powerful sanctifying influence that has. Because that means even the most ordinary task can be done to the public reputation, building up that reputation, reflecting the true glory of God in it, if that is our intent. And if we were careful and thoughtful about doing it, finding ways to bring glory to God in anything that we do, and particularly the things that God has really gifted us to do, can bring him glory. That's a wonderful thing. We don't have to be monks or nuns. We don't have to be ministers. In our ordinary vocations, we can bring him glory, and we ought to, if we were to reverence his name. And E, the good of ourselves and others. The good of ourselves and others. First Peter 2.12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Because that's what will happen. If we walk in accordance with our profession, if we, we honor him and we glorify him and live in accordance with his word, then others will see this and they will glorify him in the day of visitation. Then there's nothing better we can do for our neighbors than that. Well, those are the, the duties required. There's also, the secondly, the sins forbidden. And what are those? The not using God's name as is required. Right? There are times in which we should use God's name, and not and failing to do so is a problem. You understand that, right? There are times in which wicked people unnecessarily take the name of the Lord their God in their, in their hand and in their, their mouths uh, and wrongly decide to take up that name. But there are times in which God's people should use his name and fail to do so. And friends, that's a sin, And we should not fall into it. Be the abuse of it as ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning. Let me just deal with ignorant for a moment. A reminder that we need to know what we're doing when we take the name of God on our lips. You know, in every piece of, the more serious piece of equipment, the more warnings. Even scissors now come with with little warnings. You ought to know what you're doing when you have these scissors. Don't run with them and, and so forth. They're dangerous. Well, far more so than as you go up that ladder, as you get the gigantic hedge trimmer with big blades on it, it has a big book. And it says you really need to read this book before you start this thing up because you could hurt yourself or someone else. And more so, there are even more dangerous things out there, and they come with big books. Friends, if this is true about the name, if what we've said is true about the name of God, he's not going to hold you guiltless for misusing it. You better read up on it. And he gives you a book, and here it is. Read it, because you don't want to be, be guilty of an ignorant misuse of his name by misrepresenting him. You, are you clear about the doctrine of the Trinity? Otherwise, if somebody asks you, or if you're trying to explain it, you might be blaspheming him without even knowing about it. Are you clear about what he's done, what he's said? Are you clear about his attributes? Are you clear about the, the nature, the, the person of Christ and his Divine and human natures, you know these things. Please be clear about them. Learn about them. Don't be guilty of an ignorant use of the name of God. 
I, I say, of course, a vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning. All these things we have in various ways mentioned that we should avoid. And otherwise, the using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy. His titles, attributes, ordinances, or works even. And you wonder, how can you misuse God's works? What is he speaking of? Well, friends, it has to do with his providence, you see. Because his works are part of his providence. When, when it rains on a day rather than the sun shines, God has done that. Right? And, and if we uh, speak in a uh, dismissive and derogatory way, even of the weather, it reflects on the God of that weather. Okay? Now, if we lived in a world where it was Baal who was in charge of, of the weather, and we know that uh, Israel's enemies believed that. Baal was in charge of the weather. Um, and if, if there was good weather, it was because Baal brought it, and if there was bad weather, it was because of Baal brought it. All right? Even in that world, the prophets of Baal would not like it if you spoke ill of the weather. Uh, what was left for you was to very politely and with an offering in your hand ask for Baal to bring better weather. And that is exactly what happened at the showdown on Mount Carmel. Prophets of Baal were trying to do that. There was drought in the land. But Baal doesn't exist. He's a false god. And our god, the real god, is the one who's in charge of the weather. And therefore, when we speak even of the weather, we need to be reminded that God is the one who brings it one way or another. And if it's that true of the weather, how much more so then? The loss of a job. How much more so then? A bad grade, a bad mark on some exam. How much more so? an illness or other thing along these lines, who is the sovereign God in charge of these things? He's the one who's done it, right? All sinful e, all sinful cursing, oaths, vows, and lots. F, violating our oaths and vows, if lawful, and fulfilling the if things unlawful. That's right. Sometimes we do make oaths, and sometimes they are lawful oaths, and we should fulfill them. We should be people of our word. We should be people of integrity because at the very least, anything that we say, even if we don't uh, take an oath by God, even if we just otherwise promise to do something, remember we are representing God because we wear his uniform. Uh, G, murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, and misapplying of God's decrees and providences. We just said murmuring and quarreling concerning, but even curious prying into. Look, we, we want to know everything God reveals about himself in the Bible, but there's a point beyond which we say, I don't know. Okay, if you, you want me to tell you exactly how it is that, that Adam fell, uh, I can't tell you. All right, I, I don't know. And there are other things that God has not seen fit to explain fully in his word. And we must go as, as far as the word of God permits us. Now the word, yes, yes, the words of scripture and even the good and necessary consequences of them. But there is a point at which there is a curious prying into things. And we must leave things to God. H, a misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it, even misinterpreting. How serious is the interpretation of God's word? Very serious. Why do we throw all this, all these resources, all this time and this money into this little seminary? Why? Because misinterpreting the word of God is a serious matter. We dare not have anything to do with men who are going to go forth from us. And because either of ignorance, because they've not been taught, because they've not been tested, 
because they've not been held to the highest standards, because they don't know the original languages, that they misinterpret this word. We're not going to do that. It's a violation of the third commandment. Profane jests, curious or unprofitable questioning, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines. We've mentioned that, the maintaining of false doctrines. That's why we want pure doctrine. Abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained in the name of God. And so it goes on, friends. It's a long, long, long list. And I'll just end with this one. Being ashamed of it. That's how the list ends. Being ashamed of the word of God. All throughout history, even from the very beginning, there were those who were ashamed of the word of God, or at least parts of it. There were those, for instance, I think, in among the Alexandrians, who were so ashamed by certain parts of the word of God that they just, wanted, they just took out their scissors and cut it out because it was so weird, it was so obviously supernatural, so blatantly supernatural, and in opposition to the, the reason of, of mankind. But beloved, we must own this word like we own God himself. And there can be no part of it that we're ashamed of. Did God provide a, 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 a giant, prepare a giant fish to swallow the prophet Jonah? Absolutely. And we don't need to resort to the reality that such a thing has, has, has happened in fairly recent times. That a man should be swallowed by a whale. These things have happened. We believe it because God has said it. Did, in fact, the, the sun go backwards on the sundial? Yes, it did. Did the Son of God, who was dead, come back to life? Yes, he did as well. The very essence of our faith is to believe a supernatural miracle without precedent. And friends, we must own every part of this word and never, ever be ashamed of it. Mark 8.38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, I want Christ to own me when he comes. And he says, your great assurance of that is by owning his word. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we cannot but pour out our own confession of just how dreadfully, egregiously, how often, how frequently we have disobeyed this commandment. The more we look into it, the more that we have clarity of all of its implications. Lord, we are such sinners. We are immediately like Isaiah, those of unclean lips, those who dwell among a people of unclean lips. In all the ways that we have abused your holy name, of your word and everything having to do with your reputation, even by implication, even the way that we live, even in the way that we speak, in the way that we think. Truly, we have dishonored you. Lord, how we pray again that we would find forgiveness in the shed blood of Christ, who died for just such sins, who said specifically that even blasphemy, terrible blasphemy against him, would be forgiven. Lord, we ask that you'd enable us to walk in newness of our commitment to bring honor to your name, to bring glory to your holy name. We pray, Lord, that you'd make it possible, the great power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, we come now to the Lord's table, fully reminded of the needfulness of it, fully reminded of the, the blessing that comes, that God reserves for this sacrament. And I want to say again, it is for believers, as we've said. It's instituted by our Lord, and the Bible warns us to examine ourselves before coming to the table that only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should take it. Because by doing so, we are saying to the world in the most public way that we belong to Christ, that we believe the gospel that has been preached, and therefore we should be careful about doing so. Only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should take this sacrament, and then only those who are not in any open and defiant sin, again, because of that great contradiction mentioned. It is for that reason that the elders on the one hand guard the table from those who may not be able rightly to discern the Lord's body, and on the other are concerned that believers should not be excluded. Because if you are a believer, how wrong would it be for you to imply to the world that you're not by refusing the Lord's table? And so both of those things are to be upheld. And it is for church members, because it pictures our unity and membership in the body of Christ. It's for communicant members of this church or else of another faithful evangelical church. And so if you're able to speak of your faith in Christ, your trust that he died in your place, and if you're members of another congregation, then please come. Likewise, those believers who are for the moment in some kind of exceptional situation regarding their membership, but have received permission from the elders, you likewise are welcome to come. Now turning again to the larger catechism, 174, what is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately meditate. We just spoke of that. Meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, and earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, and renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. Here now the words of institution of this sacrament as spoken by our Lord and given to the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that you continually provide for us. Even a mention of the great drought and famine that once was in the land reminds us of your goodness in providing for us the, the fruit of the land and food and drink. But Lord, we now set aside these elements 
of bread and of wine from their ordinary use uh, to this use in the Lord's Supper. And we receive these things with thanks and ask for your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.